Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Jesus said, I am the light. I am the door, probably making a reference to the door going into this sanctuary. I am the bread of life. There was a table of showbread that was there. And we're going to go over these furnishings in, in just a moment. But it was that Christ had, an, that he is God who was clothed in humanity. Today on Practical Christian Living, we are studying the tabernacle as described in Hebrews chapter 9. But you have likely never heard the tabernacle described like this before, as we look at how its aspect and design and contents specifically relate and symbolize Jesus, our high priest who prays for us. Here's Robert Furrow with Hebrews chapter 9. Father, thank you so much again for your word. It really is rich and powerful and, and deep and meaningful, and it works inside of us, especially when we're dealing with this topic that we're dealing with here today, and that is this new covenant and what's happening in heaven and what changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament from the, what, what here is called the Reformation. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us clarity as we read this passage, as we study it together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So first of all, I want to say that Hebrews chapter 9 is a really important passage in the Bible. It's just an important section of Scripture for us to know and understand and clearly get what is being said here. Secondly, it's the kind of chapter that you can read when you're doing your Bible reading at home and just get lost and just read it and at the end go, thank you, Lord, for your word and just go on moving on because I got kind of lost in it. So we're going to try to slow down enough to where we can really grasp what's going on here and what's being said. We have learned so far in the book of Hebrews that there has been a change from the law, that the law out of necessity that we are no longer under the law. Now we know that the Bible tells us that in so many different places. So we know we are not under the law. But one of the reasons that the law, we can't still be under the law is the fact that Jesus is our high priest today. If we were still under the law and Jesus was our high priest, he would be breaking the law because he is from the tribe of Judah. And we studied that last week in chapter eight. We saw that there was a change out of necessity to the law and that Jesus is a high priest by the order of Melchizedek, which was this man who shows up in the Old Testament. And now he's going to talk about in more detail how the things in the tabernacle and in the law are a shadow of the reality that is up in heaven. So that's kind of the setting for this chapter. We're going to start by talking about the earthly sanctuary, and then we're going to talk about the heavenly sanctuary. So there's a sanctuary that is up in heaven. And this tabernacle was given as a copy of this sanctuary that's up in heaven. And when you read about the old tabernacle, we're not talking about the temple because the temple was all was expanded beyond what the tabernacle was. But when we read about the tabernacle, which the word tabernacle simply means tent. And so it was the tent that they took with them in the wilderness. When they would camp, they would put up this tabernacle and they would make sacrifices there. When we talk about that, it is from Exodus 25 through 40. 
I heard someone say once that there's more given about the tabernacle and the details of the tabernacle than any other topic in the entire Bible. Now, I haven't had time to check that out or to consider whether or not there might be something that would have more detail in it, but there's 15 chapters in Exodus that are on the tabernacle, the way that it is to be built, the details of it, and they were to make it exactly like Moses was told to make this, and we get the idea why now, all right? So, well, let's talk about the tabernacle first, and we'll get this in the first few verses, and then we'll talk about the limitations of that, and we'll go on from there. So verse one of uh, Hebrews chapter nine, it says, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So even the first covenant, and the first covenant referred to is the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And it talks about this earthly sanctuary. Then it says, for the tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which were the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. All right, so this tabernacle was, the building itself was 45 feet long and 30 feet wide. The outer court area that was made of animal skins was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. Now, this is not very big, okay? When we think about the tabernacle, you're not talking about this huge, ginormous tent. And it was a tent that had to be erected and torn down every time that they moved. Everything on the outside of the tabernacle looked kind of plain. When you looked at it from the outside, everything was brass. Everything was animal skins. And the outer edge seems to be, there's some controversy as to whether or not it was porpoise skins or whether it was badger skins. But the outer portion of it looked kind of plain. But when you walk inside of the sanctuary, this is the building that's 45 feet long and 30 feet wide. Everything is tapestry and gold and purple and pictures. The veil has cherubim on it. When you walk inside, it's beautiful. From the outside, it looks plain. Now, something that you learn about the tabernacle, and you can do this study, and it's, a, it's an in-depth study, is that everything in that tabernacle speaks of Jesus. The menorah, you could say, or the candle abra, we'll call it, could also speak of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus said, I am the light. I am the door, probably making a reference to the door going into this sanctuary. I am the bread of life. There was a table of showbread that was there. And we're going to go over these furnishings in, in just a moment. But it was that Christ had, an, that he is God who was clothed in humanity. And from the outside, well, there was nothing about him that we would want to look upon him, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah. But on the inside, he's God. He's the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is Yahweh himself. And so this speaks of Jesus as you look at the tabernacle. Now, when you walked into the sanctuary, which was this first part, 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, there were three furnishings that were in there. We call them furniture. I don't know that that's the right reference to talk about these furnishings, that they're furniture. I guess they were. But on the right-hand side, excuse me, as you walked in on the left-hand side, you would have the candelabra. And this was made out of solid gold. And the priests would go in every day and they would make sure to trim it and to put oil in it so that it was always to be lit. As long as the tabernacle was up, that was supposed to be lit. And it speaks, of course, of the light of Christ. And then on the other side was the table of showbread. That was a table 
that the priest had to come in once a week and change the bread on, and there were 12 loaves that were put on it. The 12 loaves were to speak of the 12 tribes of Israel and God being the sustenance for them and Jesus being the bread of life for us. So you would walk in, there's a candelabra, there's a table of showbread, and then right in front of the veil was the incense altar. This incense altar was made again out of gold. Everything on the outside is made out of brass. Everything on the inside is made of gold. And the, the table was acacia wood that was covered in gold, the, the table of showbread. And the incense altar was a gold altar. Outside was the huge brass altar that they would make sacrifices on. But inside was one that you would put incense on. And if you compare that with Revelation and them taking a censer, an incense censer, which is a, a device that you put incense in, you kind of see it today in Roman Catholic churches. They'll walk around, right, with their little incense and they'll swing it around and the incense will kind of fill the area. Well, the incense is a type of the prayers of the church. Again, Revelation tells us that. It is a type of prayer. So the incense altar is speaking of Jesus mediating for us. He continually is a mediator for us. He's praying for us, which is a powerful thing. You know, we, we want people to pray for us, right? We, when we go through a struggle, we're like, pray for me, I got this going on. Well, Jesus is always praying for you. And that's really powerful. And it was that incense altar that Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, had drawn lots to be able to go in and burn incense and people were outside praying at the hour of prayer while he was taking care of the incense burner. So this is not speculation at all. When you get into it, the incense, the incense inside of that tabernacle spoke of the prayers that are up in heaven. Heaven is filled with our prayers. We're gonna to get to more of the heavenly sanctuary here in just a moment. And any priest could go into that area and they would take care of these things. But only one priest, the high priest, only once a year could go behind the second veil. And the second veil is called the holies of holies. So let's read on. It's going to tell us about the second veil. It says then in verse three. So the first one's called the sanctuary. And behold, the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had a golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on its sides with gold. So we've never heard, this is, well, it, I, I won't say that we haven't heard about the censer being behind that veil. We often say that there's the veil and the only thing behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. And those are two different things, by the way. Even though the Mercy Seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the Mercy Seat is different than the Ark of the Covenant. And it was on that mercy seat that they would sprinkle blood on that would be a sign of the, the bulls and the goats covering the sin of the people that were there. This was done once a year for them. It says it had a golden censer. Did they keep the golden censer back there? Or did the priest carry in the golden censer with incense in it? When he went into the presence of the Lord that he had that censer with him, we don't really know. But most people will say the only pieces of furniture back there are the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. So this talks about this golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. And again, the golden censer, you would burn incense on it and it would speak of prayers. And then it says, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on its sides with gold. So it was made out of acacia wood. Uh, the box itself was then overlaid with gold, but the mercy seat was made out of pure gold. It was solid gold. It says, in which were the golden pot that had manna, 
Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So these three things were in the Ark of the Covenant. Now in the Old Testament, we're told that the tablets were in the Ark of the Covenant and these other items aren't mentioned. But here it mentions these other items that were there. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, is lost. We don't know where it is. It's funny how dogmatic people can get. Dogmatism drives me crazy when we don't have something that tells us one way or the other. And so there are people who will be like, well, it's in Ethiopia and these priests have it in Ethiopia and they're going to return the mercy seat. And according to the Ethiopian priests that are taking care of what they say is the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark itself, the box itself is deteriorating, but the mercy seat being made out of pure gold is in great shape. And they're going to return that to Israel when they rebuild the temple and they'll have the Ark of the Covenant. Some believe it's hidden underneath the Temple Mount and there's hundreds of caves underneath the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is they took the top of a mountain and they built a retaining wall around it and flattened out the mountain. And underneath it are arches that hold the weight of the Temple Mount. And all of these arches makes nooks and crannies and caves. And they can't, they, because it is a holy spot for Islam, they cannot go and excavate there. They can't do an archaeological dig on the Temple Mount. So some claim that it's there. And again, you're going to run into people who will say, we know it's there. They're going to be really dogmatic about it. The truth is, we, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And people can be positive as they want to be, but we don't have any evidence of that. But what we do know is that these are earthly things that speak of heavenly things. In verse 5, it says, and above it were the cherubim. This is on the mercy seat. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So we don't know why the writer of Hebrews just decided. Maybe he thought there's a lot we could say about all of these things, but we're not going to say them now. So we could talk about the typology of Christ. We could talk about the sanctuary in heaven, which he's going to go on to talk about, but he cuts it short here. There are things that we can know, that we can study, that we can learn, but he cuts it short. Now, the cherubim were angels. Uh, cherubim, when you, when you study Ezekiel and Isaiah and you have visions of heaven, there are cherubim and seraphim. The cherubim are, they're described in a couple of different places, not necessarily looking human, by the way, but having four faces and four wings. And the, the description is interesting. Seraphim, you may have heard, is the word for burning, so the seraphim are considered to be burning one, angels that are burning, but actually the word is connected to a serpent more than anything else. So when a poisonous snake would bite someone, it was said in Hebrew that they were bitten by a seraphim because the bite would sting and burn, and so they were the burning ones. So there are theologians, and quite a few theologians, Bible scholars, who will now say, that the seraphim was some kind of a serpent-like angel, which the only reason I go into it is kind of a little bit of a side trail here, but that would explain why there would be a serpent in the Garden of Eden if Satan himself were a seraphim. And if a seraphim does talk about a serpent. So a poisonous snake is called a seraphim. There's a word for snake in the Bible and there's a word for seraphim for a poisonous snake in the Bible. And that is seraph would be singular, seraphim would be plural. Okay, 
So there are cherubims and seraphims, and these two are cherubims, and they seem to be guardians in the heavenly places. These are the ones that fry around and say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and the doorpost of heaven is shaken. I've read that verse who knows how many times and never thought, I wonder what the doorposts are. What are the doorposts in heaven? What are doorposts doing in heaven? That they could be shaken by the voice of these cherubim as they are worshiping God. Now, that's the earthly tabernacle. It speaks of Jesus, but it also speaks of heaven. Now, listen to the limitations of this earthly tabernacle. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. So this is Yom Kippur. This is the sacrifice that they would make. And the high priest had to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. And then he would take two goats. One of them would be released into the wilderness as the scapegoat. The other one would be sacrificed. And then he would take the blood of that goat that was sacrificed into the holies of holies and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And, and note here that it is for the sins committed in ignorance. Because you, if you were in Israel, would go and give sacrifices for your own sin. When you would sin and knew you sinned, I mean, today, what do we do? Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. Help me. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And God's faithful to forgive us our sins. What did you do then? Oh, hey, go, go get me the best goat I have. I got to go down to the, the temple. And people see you going to the temple carrying your goat, and they'd be like, what did you do? <laughs> but you got to take that goat and sacrifice it for your sins. So, so the day of Yom Kippur, according to, to Hebrews, which is talking about Really, the work that was going on in the temple in their day, okay, was considered to be for the ignorance, sin you did in ignorance. And so we ask God to forgive us because we sin all the time and we don't know it. And so they do too. They did too. And they had that day of Yom Kippur for that. Then it says the Holy Spirit indicating this. So the Holy Spirit's now involved in indicating something. The Holy Spirit indicated this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. So the Holy Spirit has revealed something about the way into the tabernacle, what's really going on while the first one was standing. They didn't know what they were doing with that tabernacle while the first one was standing. It was only after the new covenant was given that the Holy Spirit indicated the way into the first tabernacle or the way into the tabernacle. Verse nine, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered and cannot make him who performed the services perfect in regard to the conscience. So you give gifts and sacrifices. A gift was given to God or given to the priests and not killed. A sacrifice was killed. So when you give something that costs you something, that's a sacrifice that you give to God. And, and we're supposed to give ourselves living sacrifices, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. But we can also offer God something. And when we offer God, it's not a sacrifice, it's just an offering. We're like, here, God, I, I, you have given me this and I'm giving it back to you. Well, they had gifts and they had sacrifices. The sacrifice would always be killed, okay? That would be the difference between them. 
It says, and they are offered and cannot make him who performed the service perfect. So that when you would offer those animals for your sins or for whatever sacrifices it were, Leviticus has five of them that are, are to be given, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering. So there's all these different kinds of offerings. There were also sacrifices made every morning and every evening in the tabernacle. They can't make you perfect. They were limited. Just like the law was limited and all the law could do was, was help you diagnose yourself. And that's maybe the best way that we can put the work of the law. The law could not make you righteous. The law couldn't get your sins forgiven. You could diagnose, I've got problems. I know that I'm not supposed to steal and I've stolen. Therefore, I got to do something about it. So you would take an animal and you would have that animal sacrificed. But the blood of the bulls and goats, is going to say that here, could only cover your sin. It was insufficient to remove your sin. And so you were still, it says in regard to conscience, and, and our conscience still strikes us. I mean, we'll sin today and then we ask for forgiveness and we know we're forgiven, but we still feel the, the, the weight of a conscience with it. But there was still guilt that was, was assessed to that person because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take it away. It says it was imposed various washings and fleshly ordinances. Well, let me go back here a little bit. Let's go back to verse nine. It was symbolic for the present time for which both gifts and sacrifices are offering, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience concerned only with food and drinks and various washings, fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of the Reformation. And this is not the Luther Reformation. This is the Reformation from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So he uses the term Reformation so that you were under these laws concerning food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of the Reformation. Again, we're being told that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is no longer applicable. It has been fulfilled. It has been set aside. Again, if it was still, Jesus couldn't be a high priest because he would be breaking the law. So it has to be fulfilled. It has to be completed. And so there is this reformation that took place when Jesus died on the cross and the new covenant was instituted to where now we come to Christ under the work of the new covenant, not under the work of the old covenant. But it also speaks of something else. It speaks of this new covenant and the way we entered into it. Verse 11, but Christ, literally Messiah, right? But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and calves, but with his own blood entered the most holy place for all. So this tabernacle on earth is a type of a tabernacle that is up in heaven. And that is why it had to be made so perfect and they had to follow the pattern exactly. And that tabernacle in heaven has never had the blood of bulls and goats sacrificed on it. It is only Jesus who entered in as the high priest into that tabernacle in heaven. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, 
and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.